Welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in federal politics. My name is Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and I was retweeted by Edward Snowden. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's the biggest thing that's happened to me. We're going to be talking about it for most of the episode, so everyone just buckle in. I mean, it's also like... The big, it's a big deal. It's not just like the biggest thing to happen to you personally. It's also like, I am like, wow, my friend got retweeted by Edward Snowden. Like, it's a selling point for me, too. I technically didn't get retweeted. He saw someone else being mean about a TikTok I made and then posted it and then said, stop being a fucking dickhead and uh, let people make explainers on TikTok. It's been a weird day. I mean, that was not verbatim. That was a, that was an implied reading of what he said. I'm choosing to believe that that's what Edward <laughs> Snowden, the famous US whistleblower who exposed vast amounts of misdealings by the uh, National Security Agency and subsequently fled to Russia, said, nah, you fucking dickhead, don't be mean to Matilda's TikTok. <laughs> yes, the investigator of the American government and also now defender of Matilda Bosley. The big, I think that's the big two things on his resume, personally. Yeah. <laughs> he, he really takes his job of like defending the people very seriously. He helps each and every one of you. I'm waiting my turn personally next. Get in line, babe. <laughs> Coming up on the show today, three people on our show had to go and get COVID tested on the weekend. Don't worry, we're fine. Allegedly. <laughs> so we are bringing you a mini midweek episode to make up for our lack of weekend episode due to illness. And as a special treat, we are going to base this entire episode around one single generation-defying tweet from, uh, you know him, you feel a certain way about him. <laughs> it's Federal Senator Matt Canavan. Yeah, somehow in the space of 280 characters, Canavan managed to address two of the biggest national and global news stories of this past week, and that is the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan and Australia's lack of climate action. Now, what do these have to do with each other? We're asking the same thing, Matt, uh, but do not worry. We will explain it to you all. But before we dive into this, if you love the show and you want to support the show, you can now support us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com forward slash pod. But if you're not in a position to financially support us, you can also help out a huge amount by sharing us on Instagram or social media in any way, shape or form you prefer. If you just take a screenshot of yourself listening to the podcast, throw it up on Instagram, tag us at Old Boys Club Pod. It helps get the word of the podcast out there. Okay, Matilda, let's dive into it. Justine, tell me about this tweet. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's it's such a ridiculous tweet. We couldn't help but address it, I think. Like it's it's been a real starting point for this week. So on Monday, Matt Canavan, he is a senator representing Queensland in federal parliament, and he's also a member of the National Party. Now, keep this in mind, the National Party are a party that are dedicated, they really market themselves as representing the regions, representing farmers, representing people who work in agriculture. And importantly, they form the coalition government with the Liberal Party. So the Liberal Party needs them to stay in power and they need the Liberal Party to also be in power. So they help control the government. So this is not just like some random 
backbench minor party politician sitting in federal parliament. This is a member of government. Uh, and he's also just like known around town for being probably one of the most conservative politicians in Australia, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> yes. his kind of claim to fame. Definitely. So on Monday, Matt Canavan tweeted, and I, I quote, does anyone know whether the Taliban will sign up to net zero? Now, my first question is, what? <laughs> I think that was everyone's first question. We knew we were mad. We didn't know what we were mad about. That's what I was going to say. Like when I first saw this, I'm like, I know that this is a bad take, but I cannot for the life of me figure out what your take is. <laughs> I know, in fact, I know why it's so bad, but I don't understand what you're trying to say to begin with. So yeah, I, this, I think this is why we should dive in almost forensically and really dissect just there's so few words and there's so much to criticise. Um, you know, we want to break it down for you and make sure every single element of this is all within our collective understanding. Because he touches on two massive news stories of this week in one foul swoop. So he mentions the Taliban, which is referring to what's currently happening in Afghanistan. But then he also talks about whether the Taliban will sign up to net zero, which is a reference to climate change action. So really, we have Canavan, Taliban and and Carbon Ban. Let's turn first to the Taliban. What's happening in Afghanistan at the moment? So we aren't international affairs experts. We're not going to try and claim to be. And we're going to share some links in our episode description where you can learn more in detail about what's happening in Afghanistan. But we are joined today, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between. Okay, settle down. By <laughs> TikTok viral star Matilda Bosley, who got like, what was it, like 3 million views on, on TikTok this week? Okay, it's 3.8, but we don't need to get into it. <laughs> okay, sorry, 3.8 million views for your rapid explanation of what is going on in Afghanistan. So I think that at the very least, you can take us through the basics and catch us all up to speed and do a little crash course on what the situation is in Afghanistan at the moment. Okay. So you're not going to like what I say next, which is we're going back to the Cold War. Okay. <laughs> but very briefly. Okay. So you know the Cold War. So the USSR, the Soviet Union versus the USA, they both had nukes. So they did not want to fight each other directly because they would nuke each other. So they ended up fighting all these little proxy wars, basically fighting to make sure that, you know, more countries either became communist or stayed capitalist. And Afghanistan was one of these. And Afghanistan's a country, it's a mountainous country in the middle of the Middle East. And it's known for being basically impossible to conquer and rule. But the Soviet Union tried. They invaded Afghanistan. And rather than, you know, sending in troops themselves, the US government kind of shoved money in the direction of a bunch of guerrilla warfare fighting groups uh, that were going to fight back the Soviets. And one thing that was quite common among these groups was that they were generally fundamentalist Islamist jihadi fighters. That's, you know, the mujahideen is a word that you hear a lot to describe these groups. And so there was a lot of money shoved in the direction of the mujahideen. And eventually, you know, the Soviet Union gave up their war, like Afghanistan's impossible to win. And they retreated. And kind of in that power vacuum, these guerrilla groups grew in power. And it ended up being that this group formed from, you know, within these now fairly well-financed guerrilla uh, parties. And that group was the Taliban. Okay. Let me just recap because you said a lot of things there and I want to make sure that I'm on the same page as you. Yeah. So back when the Cold War was going on, which is like the latter half of the 20th century, around the 1980s, the USA and Russia, Soviet Union, didn't want to fight things directly. 
Soviet sent a bunch of troops to Afghanistan to conquer it. US funded a bunch of like small militant groups there to fight kind of on their behalf against the Soviets. And then the Soviets, because as you said, Afghanistan's really hard to conquer, they retreated. And what was left were these really well-funded militant groups. And from those groups emerged the Taliban. Is that correct? Yep. That, that, yep. You got it. Awesome. I mean, it's infinitely more complicated uh, than I could even begin to understand, but that's the general gist of it. Okay. So then what happened from there? We've got the Taliban and what year are we in right now? Okay. That's a good point. We're in 1996 when the Taliban grows to such a power that they are actually able to take the Afghan capital of Kabul and become, I guess, the de facto government. It's not like all the international countries across the world were like, yay, the Taliban, we recognize them as the legitimate government. But for all intents and purposes, they are controlling the lion's share of Afghanistan. And when I say controlling, they had a pretty harsh, fundamentalist, repressive rule. I mentioned before I called them an Islamist militant group. That's, you know, the reference. I mean, I guess the belief system is based in Islam, but this is a very, very harsh version of Islam that most Islamic people across the world do not uh, agree with in any way, shape or form. Uh, Women were particularly at the kind of pointy end of this being uh, beaten and in some cases executed for, you know, going out in public without an escort, trying to work. They weren't keen on women getting an education or reading, things like that. So, I mean, there was a lot of support for the Taliban within Afghanistan. There was a lot of people who really did not like the Taliban. It was pretty split and the international community were not a fan. And they basically ruled the country from 1996 till 2001. And just to build off what Matilda said just then, I think it's really important to just note for everyone listening that the Taliban is not the same as people who believe in the Islamic faith. Like they are not the same thing. It's like a very extremist terrorist group similar to how we see very extremist domestically threatening versions of you know other people who claim to have other religions like i think that it's really important to separate those two in everyone's mind because for a long time we saw this like awful conflation of the taliban being the same as anyone who believed in the islamic faith and that is just not accurate at all yeah uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 like any sort of fringe religious group, except armed to the teeth with weapons that may or may not have originally come from the US. So what happens? I mean, I hate to ask this question because I think that a majority of our listeners will know what happens in 2001, but also quite a number of our listeners weren't born before 2001. Yeah. So can you explain how things escalated? Okay. So yes, we get to 2001. In fact, we get to the 11th of September, 2001. And of course, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda carry out the 9-11 attacks, crashing two planes into the Twin Towers, attacking the Pentagon gone killing upwards of 3,000 people. You said Al-Qaeda. What does Al-Qaeda have to do with the Taliban? Okay, so Al-Qaeda is a small terrorist group that at the time was largely based in Afghanistan, including uh, that's where Osama bin Laden, the head of Al-Qaeda, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks was when it was carried out. And so the 9-11 attacks are carried out and George Bush demands the Taliban, or you can kind of think about it as like the Taliban government, like it's basically the Afghan government at this point, demands that they hand over Osama bin Laden. And there's a lot of debate about exactly what went on, whether they were actually willing to or not, whether they needed to be shown proof. It's a whole complicated situation. But basically the takeaway is the US president 
President George Bush says the Taliban has refused to hand over al-Qaeda, refused to hand over Osama bin Laden. They are sheltering terrorists. They are an enemy of the US. And we are going to begin bombing and eventually invading in a ground invasion to remove the Taliban from power and ensure that other terrorist groups like this can no longer sort of flourish within that country. There is a huge, huge, huge amount of debate and controversy about exactly what the motivations were that only come kind of becomes more profound when you start talking about Iraq. But for Afghanistan, at least it's worth considering that that was the public narrative. And that's sort of ostensibly why the U.S. launched an invasion into Afghanistan. Okay, so the U.S. invades Afghanistan because the Taliban government, so to speak, won't hand over Osama bin Laden. Yes. Then what happens? Okay, so um, this is where Australia gets involved. So the U.S. invades full ground invasion. They're joined by Australian troops. They're joined by um, NATO troops. It's like a military alliance basically between a bunch of Western countries. So the UK and stuff like that were involved too. Uh, We all dive in, fight this war and basically win in a matter of months. Like by the end of 2001, the Taliban was ousted from power. They no longer were the government in control of Afghanistan. We've won the war, but then remember what I said about Afghanistan basically being impossible to conquer? Yeah, why is that? Uh, Mountains. Mountains? Yeah, mountains and a sparse population without a cohesive national identity, basically. Interesting. Okay, continue. Sorry. So hard to conquer. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to conquer, uh, but it's even harder to maintain control. So the US finds themselves in a situation where they've ousted the Taliban from power, which, you know, a lot of people in Afghanistan are happy about, but suddenly there's no government. So the US spends the next 20 years trying and failing to establish a pro-US government in its place that eventually will be able to, you know, rule Afghanistan by itself. The US isn't coming off great in this story. Have I made that clear yet? It's not looking too great here. Uh, Yeah. And they also spend the next 20 years basically trying to fight back the Taliban. Like the Taliban keeps regaining territory little bit by little bit and they get fought back. Like this is a long war. And by the early 2010s, the coalition troops, which is, you know, the US, Australia, all of that, basically go, this is unwinnable. We need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, And they spend the next 10 years from, you know, those early 2010s to what, three days ago, trying to get out. And this all came to a head in the Trump administration where Trump actually sat down with the Taliban and signed a deal with them and basically said, look, all the US troops will get out of Afghanistan by May 1st, 2021, if you agree to cut ties with all of your weird terrorist group friends, uh, reduce violence and like try and make some sort of peace deal with the Afghan government. So those were the kind of three tenants. And the US never really figured, assuming a little bit here, no one ever really figured the Taliban would be like, we will keep all of our promises, we promise. But the hope was that this Afghan government that they had kind of installed would at least be strong enough to keep fighting the Taliban back. Uh, Turns out that government was not at all capable of holding back the Taliban. And within a matter of months, the entire country fell. Okay, so to recap, Western nations realize they need to take their troops out of Afghanistan because it's not only really hard to conquer the country, but impossibly difficult to maintain control of it. Trump signs a deal with the Taliban, 
where they promise they're, you know, going to keep the peace and not at least like immediately overthrow the government. And then troops start withdrawing. And that brings us up until this year. What's happened? So we get to 2021 and the US starts going through with this. They have a new president now, Joe Biden, but he still agrees that like the time is now, let's start pulling out troops. They start pulling out troops. We do too, Australia. And immediately the Taliban jumps into action and starts capturing Afghan territories left, right and centre. And by early August, major cities near Kabul, the capital, were starting to fall. Like 40 minutes out of Kabul, a couple of hours out of Kabul, like major metropolitan centers the Taliban is now in control of. And that brings us up to last Sunday, the 15th of August. The Taliban troops surround Kabul, the capital. It is literally the last major city left in Afghanistan that is under the control of, you know, the government. And the Afghan prime minister decides that he isn't going to fight. It's going to be needlessly, pointlessly violent. It's just going to result in people's deaths. And then he does a little sneaky buggers and sneaks off secretly and flees the country. And so the Taliban walks into Kabul. Like, it's not that violent. It's not like this ultimate kind of battle. They roll in. They take over the presidential palace. They sit in the big office and they declare themselves the new government. And that's where we're at now. But the thing is, we hadn't evacuated everyone. And, you know, there was still the U.S. embassy. There were still troops there. There were still Australian troops there. And most importantly, there were still thousands and thousands and thousands of Afghan citizens who helped coalition troops the whole way through this war, whose lives are now desperately in danger. So that's kind of where the Australian government comes into this. It's all about getting our people out and the people that we owe it to getting them out. And it's been absolute chaos trying to get people out. Australia for, you know, we weren't even able to land planes for a while. Like there was people flooding onto the tarmac at Kabul airport. It's been a just horrific humanitarian disaster. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of the government that like we should have got our people out sooner. That's definitely what the Labor party has been criticizing the coalition for but like that's the central question as we're recording it at the moment like how are we going to make sure that everyone that we're responsible for in that city is safe and that doesn't even begin to cover our humanitarian obligations to the people who live in afghanistan who are now facing incredible threats to their lives. And not to mention the fact that when the coalition and the US troops came in, we kind of made a promise to people who did not want to be living under Taliban rule that they wouldn't be, and now they are again. This was a colossal failure. We spent 20 years fighting a war. It cost 172,000 lives and well over a trillion dollars, and it has come undone not just in a matter of months, but honestly a matter of days. Okay, so I guess that explains the first half of Matt Canavan's tweet when he said, does anyone know whether the Taliban will sign up for net zero? And um, given that this tweet was put out Monday morning, 12-ish hours after Kabul fell to the Taliban, uh, it probably goes some way to explaining why people felt that this was so distasteful. But we have a whole other half of this tweet to unpack, which is really what is net zero and why are we talking about it so much all of a sudden? So, Justine, um, I'm going to admit to you, net zero has been one of those words that I've kind of said a lot, but (laughs) until recently didn't actually fully understand. So why don't you 
tell us uh, what it actually means and we'll all have pretended to know all along. (laughs) That's okay. It is a word that's thrown around a lot, especially at the moment, without a lot of explanation. So just quickly, net zero is a strategy that a lot of governments around the world are adopting to try and reduce our impact on the climate, to try and stop the massive effects of climate change that are hurtling towards us at horrible speeds. It means that you as a country in this context, are only creating as much greenhouse gas as you are also removing from the atmosphere. Now, you might be wondering, how do you remove greenhouse gas from the atmosphere? And that's like by the very simple act of planting trees. But then there are also a couple of other technologies that people are developing to try and like capture carbon and clean and purify the air. Uh, But planting trees is the OG version. You say that you can, like, offset the amount of carbon a country is producing. To be clear, uh, like, current developed nations, absolutely no fucking way they're ever able to offset that amount of carbon. So a huge part of net zero is reducing the amount of emissions that you are creating to begin with so that it is actually practical at some point to be taking that much carbon out of the atmosphere to begin with. It's about reducing and then replacing. I want to say replacing. I don't know if that's the right word, but I do like the alliteration. And the reason why net zero and climate action has been back in the news this week is because a very important report came out last Wednesday called the IPCC report. IPP, I, I, <laughs> I, I, P, IPCC, I cannot say it and I will not be saying it for the rest of the it's for the rest of the podcast so I will be calling it the climate report but the intergovernmental plan Oh, no. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Keep it in. People need to know that we struggle. The Intergovernmental (laughs) Panel on Climate Change is a global climate report that is released every six to seven years. And Justine, I'm angry now. So you explain what it means and why it's important. Okay. So the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Okay. No need to brag. (laughs) With my good pronunciation. (laughs) Um, They are are the most authoritative body when it comes to climate change around the world. And every, like you said, six or seven years, they gather all of the data they have about climate change. They put it all together. They present it to UN nations. They sign off on it and out it goes as a published report. And it tells us how screwed we are and what we can do to fix the situation. Yeah, it's never like, oh, the IPPPC has like released a report and everyone's delighted. It's always like bad fucking news, right? <laughs> yes, no one- Stop no one... it. I know I can't say it. It's hard. <laughs> everyone's bracing for the climate report. Exactly. So every report is bad. This report was particularly bad. What did it say? Okay, so since the late 1800s, when industrialization first took place, We have warmed as a globe by around 1.1 degrees. So we've gotten 1.1 degrees hotter since then. Doesn't sound that dramatic, but it really is. It's so bad. Like we're already seeing the effects of this. We're seeing more bushfires. We're seeing hotter summers. We're seeing oceans rising and ice caps melting. It's not great. So this report has a lot of quite scary statistics, but don't worry, it also has a lot of hope. So don't get too anxious about what I'm about to say. The general consensus of the report is that if we get to two degrees or more, things are going to get pretty bad. Our current way of living is going to uh, 
not continue. Yeah, like that's that's when we when we're talking about like climate disaster, that like the two degree territory is like where we're at, right? That's yeah, that's definitely heading in the climate disaster way. But the good news is that the future livability of this planet increases dramatically, even with just a tiny bit less warming than two degrees. So even if we only warm to like 1.9 degrees or 1.8 degrees, our well-being, our lifestyle, our livability is going to just like be so much better. And that is why it is so important for governments around the world to be taking climate action now because what the report said is that if we all take action right now and reduce our you know greenhouse gas emissions and our, our impact on the climate we might only warm to 1.5 degrees which is still not great it is still going to worsen things like global warming but it is going to be so much better than if we get to two degrees. We're, we're being optimistic here. So every fraction of the degree that we can get that down, that's, oh, life so much better. Not great, but better. 1.8. We love it. No, we don't. It's still terrible, but it's better than 1.9. 1.6. Wow. I'll I'll take it. Actually, no, I won't take it. You know what? I will take 1.5. It's good. 1.5. Not great is manageable. And that is why it is so important that governments around the world take steps now to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Because what this report found is that if we all start taking climate action today, we're still going to hit 1.5 degrees warming, but that outcome is so much better than if we hit two degrees or more. So we are talking much more frequent extreme weather events like bushfires, tornadoes, floods, and things like that. But like, Humanity remains intact. Society remains intact at 1.5 is the general gist. The report also said some interesting things about Australia specifically. Matilda, I didn't realise this, but certain parts of the world can warm faster than other parts of the world based on their activity. And Australia was singled out in this report. How? Why? What did it say? Yeah, so I still don't really understand this, but like the 1.1 degree, which is what we've warmed so far, is a global average. And a lot of the globe is the ocean, which warms at a slower rate than the land. So Australia specifically hasn't warmed by 1.1 degree since pre-industrial times. It's warmed by 1.4, which is like bad. It's not good. We're above average. Um, and, you know, we, we're definitely seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing extreme bushfire seasons and things like that. So, you know, Australia out of a lot of people have like a bit, big old reason to start paying attention to this and really take action. So I'm assuming that we're doing that, Justine. Am I right? What is Australia's uh, climate policy? How do we compare to the rest of the world? I'm sure we're just absolutely <laughs> up there. Matilda, we are so bad. Like, oh, shit. I went into this researching being like, I know that Australia's climate policies are not great. Oh, no. Compared to the rest of the world, we are like an international laughing stock. It is humiliating. Okay. So, in July, we made national headlines because a UN report ranked us last, last, Matilda, out of 170 UN member nations when it came to our climate change action. So we were last out of 170 <laughs> countries. Oh, that seems not great. Why, Justin? Why are we like this? Well, it's because partly we rely a lot on coal-fired power in Australia and we are consistently one of the biggest carbon emitters in the world given our land and population size, which is interesting because we also ranked among the top three countries 
for how much greenhouse gas we export as a country. So not only are we like relying a lot on coal-fired power to fuel our own energy sources in this country, but we're also like exporting that energy to other countries and contributing to this global problem. But wait a second. Scott Morrison is talking all the time, and by all the time I mean literally the day after this report came out, about how actually the developing world creates, you know, two-thirds of carbon emissions and we're not doing nearly as much as China and and. And, and such the like. How can both of those things be true? That's a really good question. And that statement that Scott Morrison said is a thing that is thrown around a lot by uh, climate denialists and people who oppose climate action. So you're telling me that the man who carried a piece of coal into federal parliament would be somewhat duplicitous when talking about (laughs) climate policy, Justine? I think he was selective in what he said at the very least. The important thing to note here is that, yes, developing nations do, as a whole, produce more greenhouse gas emissions. Like, if we're going to, like, measure the volume of greenhouse gas emissions, yes, they produce more. But they also are responsible for 80% of the world's population, What the problem with Australia is that given our tiny population size compared to these developing nations, we are producing so much greenhouse gas emissions and we're helping these other countries survive of greenhouse gas emissions because we're exporting so much of this energy. Yeah, Scott Morrison gets up and he's like, developing nations make up two-thirds of the emission. Scott Morrison, you know that they make up more than two-thirds of the population. So what you're really saying is, wow, developing nations are doing a great job. Is that what you're saying? I think that's what you're saying. (laughs) And also it's like, oh, I wonder what developing nations are producing this carbon while doing. Could it possibly be manufacturing goods for developed nations? How, what are they burning could it possibly be the coal from this developed nation i got so angry in that speech it was it was a very misleading speech so the important thing to remember is that in terms of our relative population size we are producing so much more carbon than countries much larger than us Okay, but at least we have just a firm, fervent commitment to net zero emissions by 2050 right like the global standard no <laughs> no we don't so Australia actually is one of the few nations in the world that has made no firm commitment to reaching net zero at any point, really, let alone 2050. Scott Morrison, our prime minister in the past, has said, quote, we're on the road to net zero emissions. Or he said that we have, quote, a preference to reach net zero by 2050. But there's no legal or even just like concrete public statement that we are committing to a target of net zero by 2050. And just as a point of comparison, That puts us uh, at odds with what a lot of other countries are doing. Two countries have actually already achieved net zero. Others have legislated their targets to achieve net zero by 2030, 2045, 2050. Others have made public commitments. Even Matilda, even China, one of the biggest producers of greenhouse gas emissions, has said it will commit to getting there by 2060. I mean, look, I'd love 2050 from you, China, but I will take it. I'll take something. (laughs) Also, by the way, those two countries that have achieved net zero, uh, one of them is Bhutan, the mountainous country in in the Himalayas. Uh, Turns out, though, I googled Bhutan and that is not the most interesting thing about it. Is the most interesting thing that happiness index that they have? Also, no, it's that they have a lot of penis drawn on buildings in that country. (laughs) Google, there's a whole Wikipedia page called the phallus paintings of Bhutan. (laughs) So they've got net zero and phallus paintings. I mean, we have neither. What don't they have? Democracy. Go on. (laughs) 
Um, okay, so I've outlined all the ways that we, Australia, are failing to address the climate crisis and not really taking any concrete climate action. But that begs the question, why does our government not want to commit to net zero? Tell me. Okay, um, votes, basically, in coal mining regions. Ah, so it is... It is political. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the Liberal Party specifically um, Mm -hmm. for a second. There's a couple of big reasons, which is one, uh, the Liberal Party has seats, like seats of government that they want to win and, you know, even that they want to win off the Labor Party that are in huge coal-dependent areas, coal and natural gas. Those industries provide a lot of employment. So if you're going to shut down coal mines, that's not going to be like popular with those voter bases. Uh, The second reason is it's actually pretty popular or more popular with some conservative voters to have climate denial and not wanting to be big on climate change as part of your platform. Uh, And the third voter is generally liberal voters skew older, so they're going to die before climate change really affects them. Uh, The Greens and the Labor have to care because their voters will live that long. Um, And also Morrison just loves coal himself. I mentioned before, he brought a piece of coal into Parliament. He fucking frothed it. He really did. He like shook it around. He's like, don't be scared of this little rock. You know the rule about props. That's what the Speaker of the House said. I love the, you know, the rule about props. You're not allowed to bring props into Parliament. You can't bring a prop into Parliament. You know, it's funny though. He's like, don't be afraid of this little rock. And everyone is like, no, we're not afraid of the rock. We're afraid of what you, what happens when you burn the rock. <laughs> we're afraid of your sooty hands getting on me. Like you're going to touch things. I'm going to get soot on me. Like it's just going to be nasty. <laughs> that was the biggest threat that that rock had in Parliament that day. Yeah. Nothing symbolic. Um, He did a nice like charcoal painting afterwards. Um, <laughs> I've said all of this, but can I just say, if the Liberal Party was the only party in government, like if there was no coalition, if it was just the Liberals, we actually probably would have a commitment to 2050 net zero, 2050 at least. Like that is so status quo. That is so the bare minimum. That is so accepted widely that like even the Liberals would have committed to that. The Liberals are not fans of climate action. They would have probably done that. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to say that Scott Morrison wants that. And I think that we're seeing from particularly the moderate kind of centre-right side of the Liberal Party. For example, the New South Wales State Treasurer, Matt Keane, he's a member of the Liberal Party, and he is extremely outspoken about why we need climate action. So, you know, climate denialism and being opposed to net zero, just to be clear, is not a widespread opinion held within the Liberal Party. It is held by some more conservative members of the Liberal Party, like the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. But really, what you're saying, Matilda, is correct, that if the Liberal Party were in government alone, we probably would have it by now, which begs the question, what's the Nationals doing to hold them up? That's the thing. The Liberal Party is not in government alone. It shares government with the Nationals and the Nationals really do not want net zero by twenty. Like, remember a few weeks ago where the National Party voted to kick out their current leader, Michael McCormack, and vote in the new leader, Barnaby Joyce? That was because they were afraid that Michael McCormack was going to cave to Scott Morrison to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, which I, again, will remind you, is the bare minimum. And also, Michael McCormack wasn't even, like, super pro 2050. They kicked him out from the whisper of the possibility that he would commit to that. Like... This is a serious point. Not every single national, again, but definitely under Barnaby Joyce's leadership, this is a big part of it. Like Matt Canavan, the man of the hour, the man that we've been talking about the whole time, he went on Q&A after this 
IPCC <laughs> You report. did so well. Thank you so much. He went on Q&A, some letters I can say, and he said that the creators of this report, the scientists behind this, were just trying to uh, propagate fear porn and like, you know, oh, they're just trying to scare people. He said one of the IPCC authors was quoted saying that he hopes the report would scare people so it would help them change their vote. That doesn't sound like science to me and it's a great shame. It does sound like science to me, Matt, but I think that is emblematic of the general sort of uh, notion within the National Party. Like, they are one of the major roadblocks to Australia committing to net zero by 2050. Yes, and again, it's not that... Like you said, Matilda, all members of the National Party oppose net zero by 2050. It's that these really key outspoken members do. And a big problem is that in order to stay in power, the Liberal Party has to come to agreements and please the National Party to a certain extent, which is why they kind of have a lot of power in this situation. Yeah, you don't want to rock the boat too much, especially not with a cheeky election coming up. So why don't we just put off net zero for a while? For another day, not like it's urgent or anything. No, no, no. Forget what the IPPPPPC report said. Um, And that's actually the reason that we've got to the place that we've got to with Australian climate policy, which is this weird compromise, which is that Scott Morrison says that, yes, we won't commit to net zero by 2050, but also like all of the my international buddies like Boris Johnson and Joe Biden will bully me if I don't say something. So he says that we want to get to net zero by 2050, but the way that we're going to do that is through technology, not taxes. So remember at the very start where we said that there's like two elements of net zero, you need to have the technology to take carbon out of the atmosphere and you need to reduce the amount of emissions that you're creating to begin with in order to be able to offset it. Scott Morrison, he does not like the idea of reducing. He is saying, let's just develop the bejesus out of technology. Our technology, it's going to get so bloody good. We're going to get to net zero by 2050. We won't promise, but we probably will. And everyone's like, I don't think this technology is going to get us there. And he says, trust me. We will. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Trusting a government that has a huge, successful track record of getting technology right. Remember the COVID safe app, Matilda? Oh, sorry, I couldn't hear you. The NBN cut out. <laughs> Okay, Justine, this leads us back to the man of the hour, Matt Canavan's tweet. And I understand all of the components now. So does anyone know whether the Taliban will sign up for net zero? So the Taliban hours before had taken Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, and overall created all this massive upheaval. The Taliban's in control of Afghanistan now. And net zero refers to the IPCC report that came out last week and all the criticism that the Australian government in particular faced for our lack of commitment to effective climate policies. Ah, I don't get it still. (laughs) I think that's very fair. And you know what? I don't understand why you would post this tweet, but I do have a better understanding of what Matt Canavan, what point he was trying to make here because he faced so much criticism that he turned to the Sydney Morning Herald and told them why he posted it. So this is that thing of like, if you have to explain a joke, it's not funny. Like if you have to explain (laughs) a hot take tweet, it's probably not worth making. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Um, okay, but he did come out to the Herald and he said that he was trying to make a point about how like we of a society have focused too much on these like left-wing issues like climate change and not enough on real issues like military and defense. So he was purposefully making a ridiculous tweet that was like not appropriate because he was trying to make a point that, you know, you shouldn't be focusing on, he says, first world problems like diversity and inclusion rather than industrialization and defense. So that was the point of the tweet. He does realize that Afghanistan didn't just happen because we weren't paying attention to it, right? We did make the decision to go in and then leave. Like, if anything, if we were paying less attention uh, to defense, we may not have been in this situation. <laughs> That's true. The, the The main, like, issues that I have with his rationale is, number one, like, the fucking government has hundreds if not thousands of people working around the clock, like can they not focus on different competing issues of global security and safety? Like why has it got to be one issue and not the other? But secondly, this like idea that you can't focus on defense and militarization if you're focusing on global warming. I'm sorry. That is like a very stereotypical man can't focus on more than one task at a time, can't multitask kind of issue. And to be clear, it's not like the Nationals were jazzed about this either. Like uh, the former leader, Michael McCormack, called it disappointing, insensitive, unnecessary. And like even people on the more conservative side of the National Party, like the party's leader, Barnaby Joyce, came out and really condemned Matt Canavan for this. This was not like a popular move. Justine, that is all we have time for. Don't you, actually, don't you think it's ironic that we're doing a late episode about, you know, degrees rising and part of the reason the episode's late is because people on the team had a fever? That is, that is. Body degrees rising. Get it? That's that. Yeah, Justine, I get it. do you get it? Funny. See, I'm explaining the joke now and that's how you know it's funny. Um, uh, yes, that's so funny. Moving on, we need to give some thanks to people who shouted us out on Instagram this week. If you shout us out on Instagram, tag us at Old Boys Club Pod, pop it on your Instagram story. We thank you at the end of the episode. So, thank you so much to Tegan Xian, Marin, Wasteland Review, Indigo, Freya, Peach, Jordan, Nancy, and Kara. Thank you so much for shouting us out this last week. And before we go, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrawang people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. The theme music for our podcast is by the fantastic Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landers-Hanley. And, and this, this is, is Old Boys, Boys Club. Club. God, it's not getting any easier on Zencastro. That was pretty it? good, I I, you are incorrect. Can I do that one more go? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, you have my permission. Thank you. I, I love your permission. We love a consent queen. <laughs> okay. Um.